everyone. Um, welcome to the Fourth Universalist Society's Food Justice Month and our panel on food justice and climate change. Uh, my name is Brett and I'm a member of the environmental justice team here at Fourth U. Um, just to give you um, a little bit of a preview of, of the evening, um, our guests will each make a short presentation uh, about their recent findings, um, after which we'll open it up to Q&A. Um, so all of the guests will be muted. Um, you can put your questions in the chat. And then after our, our panelists have made their presentations, um, when we call on you, uh, you may unmute yourself at that time. Recently, uh, a nine-year-old girl named Ella Adu Kissy Debra, who suffered a fatal asthma attack in 2013, became the first person in Britain to officially have air pollution listed as a cause of death. That ruling puts a human face on the impact of pollution and also highlights environmental racism at the heart of our current climate crisis. And we cannot talk about air pollution or climate change without talking about the role that food systems play in these existential crises. Worldwide food systems, by which I mean production, processing, distribution, preparation and consumption of food, accounts for about 37% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And in the US, 42% of agricultural emissions come from animal agriculture. And worldwide, agriculture is responsible for about 75% of deforestation. And what we also know is that communities of color are exposed to higher levels of air pollution. Non-white Hispanics breathe in 63% more air pollution than caused by their own consumption. Black people are exposed to about 56% more than they cause. And as for white Americans, we breathe in 17% less air pollution than we cause. Emissions from some other carbon intensive sectors, such as energy generation, have been slowing as clean technology is more widely adopted. But agriculture and food production has received less attention as a cause of global warming. But research has shown that our diets and agricultural production are so carbon intensive that emissions from the global food system alone would be enough to put the Paris climate goals out of reach, even if all other major sources of emissions were closed down. So today, we're going to have a very important conversation about how the food we purchase and we consume impacts our carbon footprint, both here in the US and around the world. Who our food choices have an impact on and how we can strive to do better as individuals and as a community. Um, our two distinguished guests today, Joe Bozeman III and Matthew Hayek, are conducting important research at the intersection of food systems and climate change. They both have published recent studies that look at how the food we eat impacts the environment. And we're gonna start with uh, Dr. Bozeman today, who is a research associate at the Institute for Environmental Science and Policy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Bozeman's research explores climate change and social identity as it relates to food, energy, water, nexus, and global environmental change. He strives to, and I quote, reveal environmental and social truths through rigorous scientific research. Dr. Bozeman was the lead author of a 2019 study in the Journal of Industrial Ecology, which looked at what different demographic populations eat, how much greenhouse gas those foods are responsible for, and how much land and water they require. 
and his dissertation is titled An Exploration of Climate Change, Human Behavior, and Socio-Ecological Factors in Managing Food, Energy, Water Impacts. And with that, Joe, I'll hand it off to you. We're so glad you're here tonight. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate the introduction and I'm really excited to be with all of you. We're gonna dive right into it so we leave some room for Q&A. So as Brett made mention, food systems and the activities surrounding food systems are arguably the most significant driver of global environmental change. And when I say global environmental change, I mean everything from changing weather patterns also to the things we experience socially, which is something that often gets overlooked. And we'll talk a bit more about that. Before I get into it though, there will be some charts here. Uh, if your eyes glaze over on the charts, just listen to my voice, I promise you I'll make it simplified. But what you're seeing here is a global urbanization trend for different regions across the globe. And basically what you're seeing is an increase in the amount of people that are moving towards urban centers from 1950 all the way projecting out to year 2050. Currently we're at about 7.8 billion people in the world, but we expect to see roughly 10 billion by year 2050. And we also expect for all of these folks to move closer together in proximity. And what does that create? Not only does it create more mouths to feed, literally, uh, more resources needed to feed those mouths, but it also creates a unique social dynamic that I like to call social densification. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think we, we've seen some artifacts of that even in the capital uh, recently, and I won't go into that in detail, but essentially, when we have more people having to utilize less resources in a small confined area, you're likely to experience phenomenons we've never experienced before, and that's the framing of the, a lot of the research that I tend to do. There will be two studies of mine that I'll highlight. I'll go through some of the details of that, but one is domestic in nature for the US and the other has global implications, just to give you a bit of a framing. So let's dive into the US environmental food consumption impact framework. And if I say FCI, food consumption impact is what I mean. And here's a, a a nice little diagram of how I did it. I won't talk about it a lot. Just know that I took information from government databases along the lines of all the food we eat, over 7,000 food commodities, broke it down into 25 basic food items and got what are called cradle to farm gate food consumption impact data for each of those food items to get an assessment of how much land, greenhouse gas and water we affect based on the food we eat here in the United States. And cradle to farm gate means that all the data you see does not include distribution of food. It only includes what is actually happening at the farm before it leaves the farm gate. And when you do some cool scientific tricks, this is the information you see per capita. So if we imagine that everyone on this uh, call uh, is, is a United States citizen, on average, you tend to disturb roughly 1,700 square meters of land per year based on the food you eat, 660 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent, and th over 320,000 liters a year. Just to, to put that in perspective, the 320,000 liters, uh, liters of year 
that we impact, we only need 10,000 or so a year just to live. So you can imagine how these dynamics play. But those data points alone are interesting, but in my opinion, they don't really give enough meat on the bone, so to speak, to, to craft policy and to really understand what those numbers mean. So what I like to do with my research, I look at race and ethnicity uh, as a subgroup. And I did that with the black, Latinx and white subgroups here in the United States. For those who are a bit more scientifically inclined, the points you'll see are statistically significant. And we did have to exclude the Native American, Asian and Pacific Islander populations due to the lack of, of significance on those data points. But usually I would ask you, you know, who would you guess would affect land the most? But I'm giving you the data here quickly so we can get to Q&A. But the black demographic in the United States, based on their eating patterns, affects land the most compared to the Latinx and white subgroups. But it changes when we look at greenhouse gas. Here, we see that the white subgroup emerges as having the most impact based on the food they eat. And lastly, in the water category, and this is per capita, by the way, we see that the white demographic emerges as having the most impact uh, along those lines. And that's really interesting, right? Why are the black subgroups and white subgroups emerging as having the most impacts per their their food patterns. And I'd like to bring out one example just to crystallize uh, and simplify these complex relationships between food, land, greenhouse gas, and water. And that's this blueberry and apple comparison. Blueberries take roughly seven times more water to produce per kilogram compared to apples. So based on my data, the white subgroup eats much more blueberries then the black subgroup eats apples. And this is an interesting point. The black demographic, if this is true, could eat six times more apples than the white subgroup eats blueberries and the white subgroup would still affect water the most. And there are these complex relationships between food that we have to really begin to address because what's also not brought up enough is that we tend to live in clusters of demographic subgroups. And if we are to develop policies, which we'll get to later, we're going to have to understand the social norms and the eating patterns and how that affects climate change long term. So let's get into this global dietary framework. The Eat Lancet Commission developed a global dietary recommendation framework, which if we all adhere to across the globe, they posit that we would be able to reduce all of our planetary boundary natural resource issues enough to sustain our resources to feed 10 billion people by year 2050. I won't get into all the numbers, but just know that what you're seeing here is a representation of a business as usual case of how we eat in America. Now this represents us all. We meet eight out of 12 of these dietary criteria. Well, what would happen if we actually met all of the criteria, and that's, we do some scientific methods here and what you're essentially seeing for the bar graphs that extend below that 0% mark is a reduction in land, greenhouse gas and water respectively, if you move from left to right, of these food consumption impacts if we adhere to these global dietary standards. Notice that this brownish uh, sandpaper color 
is representative of the beef, lamb, and pork food criteria, which as many other studies have shown and many of you may already know, beef, this group, this beef, lamb, and pork group tends to have the largest impact on the environment. And as you can see here, we would see a decrease, a significant decrease in land greenhouse gas and water if we decreased our beef, lamb, pork, and added sugar consumption. Added sugars means pops, sodas, things of that sort. Now, let's look at the black, Latinx, and white subgroups. You're gonna see a, a graph like you saw earlier, but now we have the black, Latinx, and white subgroups represented, and this gets even more interesting. The black subgroup as is, or as business as usual, actually only meets seven out of 12 of these global dietary recommendations. The Latinx subgroup meets seven out of 12 also, but the white subgroup meets nine out of 12 of the criteria based on these data points. Now that's interesting. Let's look at if we adhered to the global dietary recommendations, what would occur? We would see decreases like you saw just a moment ago at the US level, but notice that to your right, the white subgroup actually would see larger decreases if they adhered, despite the fact that they meet nine out of 12 of the global dietary recommendations. And that's really interesting. We can attribute that to the beef, lamb, and pork consumption and added sugar dynamic. And we don't have enough time to get into the, the minutia and, and the refinement of these data points at the moment, but just know adhering to these global dietary recommendations could significantly help our efforts in averting the worst of climate change. So here are a few proposals and implications. I'm going to do this at a high level. This won't be a lot of individual recommendations, but I say let's add these food consumption impact data points to food labels, right? If we can understand how much salt and sugar we consume based on a food item we purchase, why not understand how much land, greenhouse gas, and water we impact? And also, let's train and educate consenting SNAP or food stamp recipients of racial ethnic food consumption impact tendencies. I'll use myself as an example. As an undergrad, I, I uh, used food stamps to survive. I probably would have taken the opportunity to learn more about how I could use my food stamps to help the environment if the government allowed me to. I think a lot of folks these days would be open to that. At a global level, the second study you saw if we adhered, we could see reductions in food consumption impacts, which were the land, greenhouse gas, and water data you saw earlier, close to 28 to 38%. Those are significant decreases that, could, that very much so could help us meet our goals. And then lastly, this is really important at the government level, let's have the US Department of Agriculture and World Health Organization address food access equity issues using these study results and findings. And we can talk more about that during the Q&A if you're interested in that. But now let's move to Dr. Hayek who can talk about these global dynamics at a more refined level. Here's my website and my Twitter feed if you're interested. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe, so much. Um, fascinating work. And I, I look forward to digging into that a little bit more when we um, get to the Q&A. As you said, we're going to we're going to move over to Matthew Hayek now, who is an assistant professor in environmental studies at New York University, just downtown a little bit from us at Fourth U. Uh, Dr. Hayek's research quantifies the environmental impacts of our food system, with a specific focus on greenhouse gas emissions and contributions to climate change. A uh, recent paper of his compares how grass-fed versus conventional beef production 
affects methane emissions and land use in the US. And his current project analyzes land use requirements of food production more broadly, analyzing how food systems can compete with native vegetation like forests. His work maps global opportunities for reforestation and carbon dioxide removal by shifting toward more efficient diets and agricultural production. And with that, Matthew, take it away. All right, thank you so much, uh, Brett. I really appreciate it. So um, as the others mentioned, mostly what I'm gonna be talking about is reducing emissions from food. That's really my specialty area. And I talk about not only how our food system interacts with the atmosphere, but other terrestrial ecosystems like forests because for the most part, you can't grow food in a forest. You have to clear it in order to produce food. So I'm gonna talk largely about this subject in two parts. Um, the first is about doing more with less and it's about you're reducing your individual diets carbon footprint or our collective diets carbon footprint, the how and the why um, that could happen. And then tech, second, I wanna get into some of the uh, more scalable solutions that I see um, using New York City as a, bit of a test case about how we can expand the influence of our dietary choices beyond the individual and more talking about um, systems and institutions. And on course with today's theme and Dr. Bozeman's contribution today, in both of these sections, I'm going to um, push myself into more of a justice and equity perspective on these issues and talk not only about you know, the, the what and how of our food emissions, but try to get at a little bit more about the inequities across um, the, the impacts and the potential rewards of a better food system. So first of all, this is a very busy graph. There's a lot going on here. I'm gonna to try to direct you and, and we're kind of getting it out of the way first. I'm gonna kind of try to direct you to the things that I find most significant or meaningful about this figure. So on the y, on the y axis, you have all of these different foods uh, and the length of the bar on the x-axis has to do with um, how many kilograms of CO2 equivalent that is not only carbon dioxide, which is a global warming gas, but methane and nitrous oxide, which are other greenhouse gases expressed in terms of their equivalence to CO2. Methane is about 28 times more potent per molecule than CO2, so it adjusts methane for that fact. So when we look at the top of this graph, we see the most impactful, largest emitting foods. And on the bottom are the least emitting foods. And you may notice if you look closely, some broad tendencies in this figure, uh, which Brett got at in his introduction, is that on the top of this graph, many of the highest emitting foods, but not all, many are animal agricultural products, meat and dairy and eggs. And on the bottom are different plant products, particularly plant protein products like peas and root vegetables and soy milk, um, ground nuts, which are peanuts, things along those lines. And something that I really appreciate about this graph, but does admittedly make it a bit more complex, is it divides the bars up in terms of where those emissions are coming from. So we think about a lot of emissions coming from the transport of our food and the in the in the bright and the yellowish green here and the emissions coming out on the farm like the belching cattle. But additional information on this is the land use change, how much forest was cleared in order to make way for that production. And we can see that beef not only has a lot of emissions coming on the farm from those belching cattle and their manure, but also a lot of land use change going on. A lot of the deforestation that's happening currently 
around uh, the Brazilian Amazon and the African Congo are due to making more room for cattle, which have a massive land footprint in order to produce beef and dairy. Another thing that I think is really significant about this before moving on uh, is that transportation, as I mentioned here, shown in the, bright, the brighter yellowish green, is a very small amount of pretty much any food's carbon footprint aside from a couple things like lettuce. So when we think about eating more sustainably by eating locally, that actually has a very tiny, um, small fraction of an effect on the amount of emissions from our food system. In fact, a banana imported all the way from Ecuador in um, tanker liners and across trucks are still about 75% uh, 75 times less emissive than a steak purchased just nearby from upstate New York. So this just goes to show that really what seems to have the most of an effect of the emissions in our food system tend to be what we're eating, that is particularly meat and dairy products and not necessarily where they're coming from. And these facts are reflected in the Eat Lancet dietary, global dietary guidelines that Dr. Bozeman mentioned in his talk. And I'm likening those dietary guidelines, which are very similar to the most recent Canadian dietary guidelines. They're almost the same thing. They call for large reductions in red meat, that is beef, pork, and lamb, um, increases in fruit and vegetable consumption, and shifting from refined starches, grains, and sugars like soda, white rice, white bread, to whole grains like wild rice, brown rice, uh, uh, farro, uh, wheat, whole wheat bread and spaghetti and different pastas. Um, meanwhile, so what we can see about this plate is that it is mostly a plant-based plate. And it can be entirely plant-based because there's a protein food category as you can see here. And you have things like low fat yogurt and salmon and chicken and a little bit of red meat, honestly about one or two servings per week and servings being three ounces, not a 16, not a, not a full pound porter, right? So um, in addition, there are things like walnuts and uh, mung beans and sunflower seeds, kidney beans and chickpeas tofu. Protein comes from a lot of very diverse sources. And the most recent Canadian food plate, in addition to the Eat Lancet dietary guidelines, really do recognize this. Furthermore, there's no industry influence in the most recent Canadian dietary guidelines. The executive branch of government fought long and hard in order to get the milk and beef industries out of the process of making our dietary guidelines, as well as the sugar industry, you know, the soda industry. Um, which unfortunately in the United States, we have a more democratic process of creating our food guidelines, which sounds great. We all want more democracy, but the average person or an industry trade group, despite the fact that they can make public comments on our nutritional guidelines, aren't good authorities on what a healthy food system consists of. We really should be looking to dietitians, clinical nutrition experts, doctors, um, researchers in order for this crucial information. Um, and so in the Canadian food plate, they don't recommend drinking two or three glasses of milk a day. They recommend drinking water. And some dairy products are relegated into the calcium category. 
as absolutely little sugar as possible. And as I mentioned, eating whole grains instead of refined white carbs. And importantly, these dietary guidelines that Canada produced did not take greenhouse gas emissions into account, but they ended up converging on the same healthy food plate that the Eat Lancet dietary guidelines produced when they did take emissions into account. So this plate by happenstance happens to be incredibly low emissions. And some of those low emission benefits you saw from Dr. Bozeman's talk. Furthermore, when we talk about reducing meat consumption, I often hear uh, a tagline that likes to be used by proponents of eating more beef, that it's not the cow, it's the how. But it turns out it really is the cow. And in order to put whether it was the cow itself, as in the meat that we eat, um, that was hurting the environment, or the how, as in how we happened to produce it that was hurting the environment, my colleague and I actually modeled a system using a bunch of USDA data and environmental inputs. We modeled a system where Americans shifted towards a system of entirely grass-fed beef, like is often produced in upstate New York. And what we found, uh, the, the results ended up being even more surprising than we expected. We found that turning USA's feedlot raised beef, where we fattened cattle up in the last third of their lives on feedlots, to a system where they were entirely grass-fed, we would actually need 30% more cattle just to be able to do this. A big reason why we kind of invented these corn and soy fattening feedlots in the first place was the fact that when you fatten a cow up, or even on the most luscious grass, it can only get to a certain weight and it fattens up over time more slowly than if you feed, feed them refined grains. So we would not only need 30% more cattle because they fatten up more slowly and get to lower slaughter weights, but those cattle would belch 43% more methane as they have to break down that grass longer inside of their stomachs, producing methane as a byproduct from belching. It's not farts, it's actually belching. Um, and lastly, we would need almost four times the land that we currently use to produce beef on. Considering that we currently use a third of the lower 48 contiguous United States in order to produce beef in this country, we essentially couldn't do this without annexing Canada and Mexico. What this means ultimately is that we need to lower our red meat consumption no matter how it's produced. And so, as I mentioned, raising cattle produces greenhouse gases like methane as well as nitrous oxide when they belch them into the atmosphere and produce the sheer amount of manure that they produce. However, as we talked about in the overall um, emissions, that's not the only emissions they produce. There's also land clearing that happens in order to make room for all of those cattle. And those are forests that are no longer sucking up CO2, but rather as they're being burnt and cleared, they're releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, creating even more global warming. So farmed animals emit greenhouse gases, but they also use a lot of land for grazing, many more times than the amount of um, land it takes to produce crops to feed humans directly. So if we ate mostly plants, that is an Eat Lancet or Canadian food tape plate type diet, we can grow everything we need and use far less land to do so. But then what happens to all that land that we cleared years or even centuries ago in order to produce all the beef and dairy that we were used to eating and chicken and pork? Well, it turns out that a lot of it can be used to regrow forest or even regrow things out in the American West like sagebrush that does a really good job of soaking up carbon, even in a near deserted landscape. And that would pull carbon out of the atmosphere in the process. 
and in the meanwhile would provide some nice habitat, oops, would provide some nice habitat for animals in the process and preserving wildlife. So my colleagues and I actually set forth to quantify what we're calling this carbon opportunity cost, the potential for native vegetation to recolonize abandoned farmland and suck CO2 out of the atmosphere in the process if we were to shift our diets towards largely plant-based food sources. And we found perhaps some things that are unexpected where recent land clearing has happened around the border of the Brazilian Amazon and in southwestern, uh, in southern China where there were a lot of native tropical forests at one point, a lot of CO2 could potentially be pulled out of the atmosphere and into vegetation. But there were also large swaths of land in the United States and in Europe, some of which had been cleared century, even a millennium ago, that are actually really good environments for, for uh, producing forests natively. They just haven't been in that condition for centuries. And um, really, in every hemisphere on Earth and in every continent, almost every continent, there's really a massive reforestation and rewilding opportunity cost by shifting our diets towards eating lower on the food chain. We also wanted to quantify where this opportunity is. Um, here in the four colors that kind of break this up into whether it's cropland or pasture, you know, cropland producing animal feed like corn and pasture producing grass, and whether the native ecosystem was a grassland or a forest. And we divided that up by economic tiers of countries. So we could look all the way from the high income countries like the United States to the lowest income countries um, like Sudan and certain sub-Saharan African nations. And we found that, and we also compared this opportunity to pull carbon out of the atmosphere by shifting diets to the past decade of fossil fuel emissions from these tiers of countries. And we found that largely the biggest opportunity to sequester carbon lied in upper middle income countries where there are rising mi middle-class populations consuming a lot more meat. However, what's really important about these areas is that while they're middle-class populations consuming the meat, sometimes they're the poorest people in the country producing it. So there's really a, a, an equity uh, problem that needs to be grappled with in these, in these regions. Um, however, in the high-income countries where um, really in the United States our farmers themselves are just about as rich as people living in urban and suburban populations, there's a massive opportunity cost to offset in terms of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, almost the same amount of CO2 that we've emitted from fossil fuels in the past decade. So by shifting towards eating lower on the food chain, not only can we cut some emissions off at the source, um, but we can literally reverse a part of climate change. This doesn't get rid of the need to get entirely off of fossil fuels, but it can help supplement and abate that transition period that needs to happen as we shift towards renewable energy. Now I'm gonna talk about some scalable solutions and I've already kind of alluded to what we as individuals can do, but what, we can, what can we do as members of communities? First of all, I think some really low hanging fruit exists here in New York City. It's an incredible area for vegan and vegetarian dining. And these are all plant-based dishes that I myself have eaten around New York City. And far from you know, the pallid tofu or you know, slimy cold three bean salad, there are so many different diverse options around the city reflecting food cultures from all over the world, including a Filipino sundae served in dragon fruit with ice cream made out of ube, that is purple sweet potato. Uh, a, uh, a plant-based milfoy that's indistinguishable from its French counterpart, 
um, that you could not even tell used didn't use real butter. And um, some Shanghai noodles that I got from Chelsea Market, um, uh, obviously in Chelsea, that were sitting in a really spicy, delicious um, red pepper broth. So, you know, there are so many different um, food items around New York City that one can kind of be adventurous about and try not just cutting meat out, because we often talk about cutting meat out if it's some personal sacrifice, but really being adventurous and trying to crowd out um, our typical meat and dairy heavy diets through diverse and plant-based options. Um, but beyond individuals, institutions can develop action plans to not only you know, reduce the waste that we ourselves are producing, but uh, to produce less as a workplace or as a city government or a school. Um, Refed has really is a nonprofit with really innovative solutions in terms of uh, both high and low technology solutions to track how much waste is being produced. But we can do the same thing with uh, eating more plant forward diets as well. And there's a fantastic organization called Default Veg that recommends changing the default food option at any event from being you know, the roast beef sandwich to the falafel. Importantly, you're not cutting out any choices here. You're just crowding them out. If you want to get a chicken uh, sandwich or roast beef, you can always have that as an option, but make the first option um, the default option, the vegetarian option. And the, uh, the meat option be something that people can opt into rather than getting by default. And lastly, um, New York has proved itself to be a leader by implementing Meatless Mondays for NYC schools that started in fall of 2019. There was an emphasis on replacing meat with plant protein, particularly. And Mayor de Blasio not only linked this to health and animals, but to reducing greenhouse gas emissions explicitly. And this is becoming part of New York City's Green New Deal plan to make its goal by 2050 to reduce the city's red meat purchases by 50% in line with what Dr. Bozeman was talking about earlier and the benefits it entails and phase out the purchasing of all processed meat that is meat that was processed with salts and nitrates which are linked as known carcinogens by the World Health Organization. So lastly, when we think institutionally, there's a lot of emphasis on divesting from fossil fuel companies and New York State is making some fantastic progress in this respect. And I really think that meat and dairy companies, which are involved in the same type of climate change denial and industry risk taking and lack of man risk management as the next frontier in divestment after we've um, nipped fossil fuel companies in the bud. So with that, there's my Twitter handle, my email address if anyone wants to reach out. And I thank you all for your time and hopefully I didn't run too far over it. Oh, it's amazing, Matthew, thank you so much. Um, before we open it up to questions from the audience, um, I wanna, I'm hoping to ask uh, the both of you um, one discussion question to kind of kick things off. And I, mean, I think it's based on both of your presentations, it's obvious that a, a plant-based diet is the way for us to mitigate um, carbon emissions, but that is fraught with a lot of different questions about um, cultural sensitivities, regional differences in food consumption and, and norms. And I think most importantly, probably in our very own city, the issue of food deserts where people don't have access to healthy plant-based proteins. And I'm wondering if I could get both of your your takes on that sort of justice issue and cultural issue when looking at it through that lens. 
And, and I can jump first, Dr. Hayek, if you don't mind. Uh, that is a serious issue, especially when it comes to the food desert conversation. I think there has to be some system level and federal government engagement when it comes to facilitating food system access. And that's why I made mention of the USDA and the World Health Organization being more uh, aggressive and assertive in addressing food equity. There's enough data out there at this stage where we know where the spots are. We have census tracts. It's, it's pretty clear where food deserts tend to emerge, uh, but it's very complex on getting all the different uh, economic players to address this issue at the same time. A lot of folks don't realize, or at least some folks don't necessarily realize that food deserts are sometimes connected to gentrification, uh, which of course has its linkages to the political system itself. And then uh, we have to have local, uh, regional and, and federal level engagement that is functional, which I think a lot of us would, would say that uh, our, our government systems are struggling right now. So I think the answers are clear. I think we can address food access in a way that plant-based food items can be given to the Latinx community in a way that's not entirely culturally insensitive, uh, maybe the black demographic in the same manner. But to make that happen, we have a lot of other issues to, to shift and to put into a healthier spot, in my opinion. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Bozeman. Um, I, I think you get to the heart of it right here. Like a lot of this is a policy failure just through and through. And one of my colleagues likes to say that the best thing you can do to fight food apartheid is not food related to food systems at all. It's fighting for affordable housing. Because if you were to just bring healthy food into a neighborhood through like an organic bodega rather than, you know, like a, a standard corner store or a Whole Foods, what happens? Like the, the lower income people in that community get displaced. It's, it's tale as old as, you know, 20th century um, or, you know, our country. Uh, so uh, we, we really need to fix housing and um, cultural sensitivity is really important and not something that I want to minimize. At the same time, like food systems and food deserts have different characteristics by race and class, even in New York City. I mean, markets look very different in terms of the amount of produce and prepared food they have in the Bronx versus Queens here. Um, so I think there are a lot, and something that was actually important to the Eat Lancet dietary guidelines was that they had guidelines where meals exist within every country or region that are culturally appropriate and fit within those dietary guidelines. And, you know, if you look at how meat is used in, or, uh, you know, seafood, for instance, is used in South, a lot of Southeast Asian countries, it's not you know, for the most part, a filet of fish with some curry sauce on top. It's like some curry with some pieces of fish to flavor inside of it. And we can really think about changing the default in our institutions and changing the default like on our plates. If you don't wanna cut out meat, that's fine, but it doesn't have to be that 32 ounce porter, right? It can be, uh, you know, a, a, a grain and arugula, you know, bowl with some skirt steak on top. <laughs> um, I, on the, I personally think that eating plant-based and eating plant-based in kind of like a multicultural way is affordable if you have the time and convenience to kind of go around looking for it. And one last thing that I'll say that makes all the difference, 
Vegan and vegetarian food are no more expensive than meat and dairy. You find cheap and expensive products across those categories. What really makes the difference is the time and these days luxury to cook, which a lot of communities can't afford. So again, food justice is economic justice, is you know housing justice. Um, it, it, it really doesn't behoove us to try to isolate these problems when they work in tandem with one another. You both mentioned policy. In terms of um, this entire set of programming, we're trying to give people actionable advocacy steps. In terms of policy, what would you suggest um, someone does when they call up their, their politician? What, what is the issue that's, that's most pressing that they can have an impact on? I'll, I'll jump at this first again, Dr. Hayek. There is actually a, a study that we're working on right now that looks at federal food policy and its social inclusivity. We use this criteria system and assess all the food policy and really look at if they're addressing socioeconomic and racial ethnic issues within the policy framework itself. And of course we find that in the vast majority of cases, socioeconomic equity and racial equity is not mentioned at all outside of children nutrition and a few other uh, one-offs. So, one tangible thing, if you want to talk to your local politician or even your Senate representative or House representative, U.S. House representative, I have a, uh, a, a framework that's called an equity impact statement um, that myself, along with some colleagues, have come up with that, this, that aligns itself very similar to the environmental impact statement that are associated in a lot of federal policies. This gets a bit into the, the wonkiness of, of policy. But nonetheless, we should be able to address equity issues in every policy we administer, at least at the federal level. And then we can even make a federal law that requires all state policy that's related to food to look at equity issues each time that these policies are enacted. And without that, they essentially aren't legally uh, binding uh, when it comes to, to Congress. So that's one tangible way that I think we can have a catch-all that forces policymakers to seriously look at equity dynamics as they're crafting the policy, instead of you know, just making backroom deals, shaking hands and pushing the policy out. And then we sit back and realize several groups are marginalized suddenly. We, we have to do this on the front end, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I just defer to Dr. Bozeman there. Um, you know, the the thing that I want to mention and just kind of complicate this with a little bit is that I think I think the personal is political. And I think a big reason to try to push yourself in more directions is not only live in a more consistent way with your own values, but to open your eyes with how systems work with your personal choices. And and by being compassionate, um, where where those personal choices aren't able to be exercised by people who aren't as well off as you. So, you know, as as an example, I'd recommend anyone trying to, you know, go a month entirely plant-based. That's how I got into it. Or, or, you know, if you need the bar to be different, you know, only eating, say, two servings of red meat in the entire week, something along those lines. And go out, make different choices, find how easier or hard it is in different ways, but also be conscious about, you know, how your environment is enabling that. We're not really flying much these days, but if you're finding that there's no plant-based options in airports, you know, those are areas that have to, are to a certain extent regulated by municipalities. And you can actually talk to your local person, you know, local representative in an airport and train station and say like, there's only Sabaro here, you know, there's, there, there, there are no healthy options. I don't see any plant-based options, what's going on. And in LA, they're actually introducing all 
you know, uh, city venues from airports to stadiums to require having plant-based options. They're, they're introducing, or we're about to introduce this legislation, I think, before COVID. So, um, you know, I, I would say like, make, make the policy a little personal for yourself. And hopefully that can open up your circle of empathy and compassion and, you know, in righteous indignation to be a little wider and understand a little bit more how those, how those choices ripple out. Thank you both. I see we have a, a question in the chat from Monica. Monica, do we, do we wanna unmute Monica so she can ask that in person? If not, I'm happy to- You're uh, still muted, Monica. Yeah, man, we can read it off. Yeah, yeah, I'll read it. Uh, Monica asks, um, what are your thoughts about promoting vertical farms in EJ communities to provide both jobs and healthy plant-based food options? Well, and, and I'm thinking EJ environmental justice, I'm assuming that stands for, uh, I guess Monica's not online to, to verify that. I'm but I'm on, assuming, yeah. Okay, yeah. EJ environmental justice, correct? Yeah, in communities where people need both jobs and healthy food, I've seen wonderful examples uh, of these farms popping up in cities um, and in cold areas as well. And they utilize clean, renewable energy for the most part. They um, provide jobs for people in the local community and they provide a wonderful array of healthy um, options, fresh fruits and vegetables, mostly vegetables. Thank you for that question, Monica. I do think it's a, an important part of the solution. Mm -hmm. but, but one thing I do wanna make mention of, vertical farms, based on the research I've seen thus far, don't necessarily have the kind of carbon dioxide reduction that we really wanna see. So mm -hmm. we, it'll have economic implications and I think a lot of goodwill in regard to social dynamics, but we do wanna accompany that effort with some of the larger food system changes that Dr. Hayek and I have been, cha have been uh, championing today. Uh, and, and despite all of that, personal food choice, when it comes to what you consume, what I consume, is still gonna have the largest impact and the impact is gonna be lagging, right? If we holistically shift our diets here in the US at a, a strong enough level that we force our corporations to start changing the manner in which they produce the food, we're still looking at several years, maybe even decades, before we can see those changes uh, manifest. And we don't have that much time. So we have to marry our personal choices, uh, efforts like EJ uh, and vertical farming with direct asks to our politicians and even to our other systems right now, because that's just what we're, that's what our, our generation is required to do, so to speak. Um, and I think that's probably all I have to say on that issue at the moment. Yeah, I, so I'm somebody who has also looked into the carbon footprint of vertical farms and, um, and compared them to the industry statements about what their emissions are. And uh, they're, they're massive. Um, I've never actually seen a vertical farm that's powered entirely on renewable energy. Because if you think about how we produce crops, we already use renewable energy to produce them, right? And you hear arguments from you know, folks involved in that industry, yes, it's reducing pesticide usage, water, fertilizer. Those are all energetic inputs. But as you saw maybe on the figure, 
is that the like manufacturing of those inputs are a very small fraction of the emissions. Really matters what you eat far more than how it's produced. And um, when we look at those emissions, by far the largest energy input into producing food is, is the sun, it's photosynthesis, right? So, um, it, and that's really the reason why the only products that you see coming out of vertical farming are delicate lettuces, basil, and maybe the occasional cherry tomato. Um, and the price of those foods is four times higher, 10 times higher per unit weight than what you would get either at the farmer's market or from the grocery store. So I'm incredibly skeptical, not only of the sustainability claims being made by the industry, but also the equity claims. I think as Joe talks about like, there's really all the potential to try to hold them accountable to having uh, an equity strategy. Um, and I, at the very least think that can be mitigated rather these vertical farms just enriching rich, already rich venture capitalists. Um, so, you know, I think they are inevitably gonna be a part of our food system, but I really don't see them playing a crucial role in mitigating environmental impacts. Great, thank you. We have um, Stephanie with a question about uh, something close to all of our hearts, chocolate and coffee for Matthew. Stephanie unmuted. Oh, she says she cannot unmute. Um, I'll begin asking. Uh, in Dr. Hayek's presentation, about food groups representing the most footprint by land use, I noticed that ch uh, chocolate and coffee ranking relatively high, right below animal products. Uh, curious uh, how these cash crops present a challenge for reducing emissions. They probably provide more economic than nutritional value. Should production consumption of these be reduced? Uh, yeah, great question. I, I think honestly that these, these uh, kind of low calorie tropical commodities like chocolate most of the calories from chocolate, by the way, are from the sugar that we add to it, not, not the chocolate itself. Um, and, and coffee, generally saying, speaking, when I say it's not what how we produce it, it's what we're producing in the first place, I would say coffee and chocolate are actually the two major exceptions because most of their emissions are coming from land use change that is converting forests into, um, into fields. But coffee and cocoa are, two of the only crops that you can actually produce in the shade under a canopy of trees that are actually either going towards sustainable harvesting for timber or just our wild species. Um, and there's actually a lot of potential to make those two industries more sustainable. So I really think that those two commodities really are kind of the exception to the rule. And you really should be going for sources that are fair trade at least and sharing profits with you know, their, their producers because you're absolutely right that these crops are um, provide a lot of economic value. Um, and generally speaking, the ones in producing agroforestry systems are also the plantations that are um, more, uh, you know, where, where, where the producers are more uh, fairly compensated. Um, there's a lot, I, I could, I could talk, give a whole talk about coffee and cocoa, yeah. but I think just going for fair trade sources, Rainforest Alliance certified, et cetera, are some of the best um, purchases that you can make with those commodities. Great. We have a lot, of, a lot of questions now popping up. I see James with a hand up first. Uh, if you want to unmute James. Hi everyone, thank you. Oh, you just oh. muted again, James. 
James, you got to unmute yourself. I think you hit the button twice. Heard you for a second. Yeah, you're still muted. Oh, okay. There we go. It says the host is not allowing people to unmute. So oh, yeah. um, I just got a prompt. So that might be why someone else wasn't able to. Thank you, Dr. Bozeman and Dr. Hayek for this uh, presentation and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. Um, yeah, I, two things I'm thinking about. Uh, one, I was just wondering, are there any models or policies in work uh, to use the educational system in this country uh, to make more accessible uh, this kind of information uh, that were, was presented today? And like, is that something that is feasible or possible on like a federal level? Or are there any local communities that you know of that have made it work within their own local educational systems. Um, my second question is, uh, you know, it's the chicken and the egg. It's like, oh, there's communities doing this work. And then we're also thinking about like, who's providing it. So like farms and uh, farm systems in this country. Uh, and I just think about like, what about the farmers who are, uh, you know, cattle herders for generations who have done this work, who see this as like their culture. This is like what they've known all their lives. And so I just wonder in this, in this work has, what's the consideration for like onboarding them to transition into more like plant-based or, you know, reforestation, the things that you all mentioned, wonderful things, but how did that, how is that, how is that made possible? for those folks. Um, so, and also like, which comes first? I guess like in my thought, it would be communities and these um, farmers, but, and policy, but I'm just wondering, yeah, how would we do that? So two questions, thank you. Thank you for that question, James. Uh, Dr. Hyde, do you wanna, anything pop uh, up I, I was wondering you? actually if you had anything to share on the education front. I had a lot, I have a lot to think to, that I consider with the second question. Me but... too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I do I do have one item I can make mention of on the education front. Sure. Uh, one of my policy proposals in the presentation, and I don't, I'm not sure if you had a chance to see that, James, hopefully you did, uh, was to actually look at using some of the existing food-related government systems. We do a lot of child nutrition uh, federal policies, we can definitely utilize that avenue to educate children to help our future uh, food behavior. The other one is to address existing food stamp recipients uh, if they consent. Now, consent is really important, but that's another area that we can do that right now. It is true we're going to have to develop some more broad and, and wide-reaching educational frameworks, but I have to say you know, Dr. Hayek is at NYU as a professor. He's already doing some of that work with, with some of his students. Uh, myself, you know, I, I have a chance to, to educate K through 12 all the way through moments just like this. And, and I know Dr. Hayek and I were putting as much effort as we can with utilizing, you know, the traditional system of publications as well as, as media, podcasts, things of that sort. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to need policymakers, our Congress folks, and a, a plurality and a majority of, of the citizens of this country to demand this change quickly as part of the climate change adaptation and climate change uh, mitigation efforts that we're trying to expound through the Paris Accord and a few other efforts internationally. So there's nothing that I can point to that says, all right, this is a, the greatest thing that we can do, but there are some things that we can do right now 
that we're not doing, in my opinion. Quick follow-up on that in the interest of time, because we're, we're running low on time. Uh, Christina asks in the chat, um, Dr. Bozeman, about carbon footprint labeling on food. And she's wondering what you see as the most effective policy levers to get the USDA to add a carbon footprint label on our food items. Real quickly, to not be long-winded, essentially we're going to have to do what we saw a lot of millennials do to, to Uber once there were some race issues. We're gonna to have to actually use the power of our money and our choice to demand these corporations to start doing this. Otherwise, we're going to, I don't know, shift towards this certain plant-based corporation. I don't have one identified, but we're gonna to have to coordinate our efforts as, as buyers of food and force our corporations to make these changes, which in turn will also have an impact on Congress. Uh, they go hand in hand because they fund them when it comes to, to campaigns and things of that sort. But Dr. Hyde, I think had some, some things to, to respond to on James' second part of the question. Yeah, just on the carbon labeling standpoint, I know a lot of people involved in food law. And what I can predict right now is if we force a lot of corporations to start having carbon labeling, um, a lot of companies would get it wrong. And then a lot of consumer advocacy groups would start suing the corporations until the government finally stepped in and started regulating it. So that, that could be a really cool venue of kind of trying to force some regulation on the issue. Um, so yeah, with regard to um, James's chicken and the egg question, like which comes first, consumers or producers, it's a chicken and egg, it's a, it's a carrot and stick, it's a both and approach that we really need to take. And I think this is a really effective one. Um, some animal advocacy groups are actually working right now to get um, uh, animal farmers, particularly chicken and dairy farmers to substitute their production, everything from agritourism to growing hemp to potatoes, um, get them out, out of the already economically exploitative animal production system and get them producing something a little bit more sustainable and profitable. Um, and this is working very well on, on kind of economic terms alone, especially if dairy, the price and the quantity of dairy sold continues to tank, you know, uh, uh, dairy farmers are already in really bad condition. And I think a big portion of this economic justice is to be honest, be, be very honest and say the writing's on the wall. Um, globally, communities are transitioning away from this stuff. Let's get out out ahead of this and prepare you as well as possible to be as ready as possible and your your children who are going to inherit this farm and 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 the communities around that farming to see that writing on the wall and get you out ahead of that curve so you can ride that wave more more productively and i think there's also an analog um, that that looks very different but can be be very potentially productive economically and sustainably for smallholder producers in low and middle income countries as well and, and a lot of the conversation that's happening right now around that is called just transitions. So as we talk about food justice, making sure that producers aren't left out of the, 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 the uh, tide swell of changes that are coming um, for global food systems. Um, related to that, Steve in the chat asks um, about a, a carbon tax type model uh, for meat products essentially, or dairy products. Is that something that, that could have a, a impact policy-wise? I will say I'm skeptical of that. And not only because it's just not palatable in the United States, which it really isn't. I think the first priority is getting subsidies out of the food system or shifting subsidies to what, what we wanna produce. And um, I think really the biggest part of that, uh, another potential complication is that ways of producing 
foods in some ways may actually raise greenhouse gas emissions. So say for instance, if you want some rotationally grazed beef in your production system, that will cause more greenhouse gas emissions, but is arguably better if done on a small scale than forcing 100,000 cattle into a feedlot. That will have larger carbon emissions, but upon reducing consumption, you might wanna see producing looking a little bit more like that. Um, and there's also an analog with beef to chicken. I think that when you only optimize for carbon and, and reduce carbon, you could potentially increase some other issues. So for instance, chickens are fed per unit weight three times more antibiotics than beef are fed. And antibiotic resistance is a huge issue in this country, as are just the general risk of pandemics from raising animals for food, which, you know, is, a, is essentially, it was, it was you know, uh, arguably from bat bushmeat, but but where COVID-19 came from as well. So I wanna make sure that we're not trading off carbon emissions for some other risks like an antibiotic resistant pandemic. Um, and just to quickly add to, to what Dr. Hayek is saying there, uh, one of the things we haven't touched cause I didn't bring up the socioeconomic work that I, I tend to do, but when it comes to buying power, that's very, very race and, and ethnic specific. So a lot of these questions, and I don't wanna be, you know, to sound like I'm impugning any subgroup when I say this, the subgroups that tend to have the, the largest power economically tends to have the largest power politically. And sometimes we have to utilize the networks and, and, and uh, strengths that we have within our subgroups to actually inf impact change. So for instance, the white subgroup has the most dollars and buying power when it comes to food. So some of those, these changes we're gonna have to see what probably have a more quick impact on the broader economic system and climate change efforts if we saw the white subgroup make a shift uh, and, and do some of these efforts first. And as Dr. Hayek made mention of, some of this is just a matter of time and resources and, and these other subgroups don't have the same kind of flexibility and latitude that the white subgroup has in the United States. So that is something that I think a lot of people shy away from when having this conversation, but I think it's important to bring that up. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to have to wrap up here. I don't, uh, there's some questions that have not yet been answered and they're, they're fairly um, detailed questions. So perhaps if people want to stick around, um, Joe and Matthew, we could, we could hit a few of those, but I want to just get in a few housekeeping notes uh, before we do that for the people that have to leave at, at eight o'clock. I want to say that you should um, definitely sign up for the subsequent um, events we're going to be having. Next week, Tuesday night at seven, we're gonna be talking about um, that issue of food apartheid in New York City and about hunger and food insecurity. It's gonna be a fascinating conversation. And then the following Tuesday, we're going to be talking about food waste and about composting. Um, we're gonna put the link in the chat to sign up for those events. We'll also put our email address for the environmental justice team. If you wanna join our mailing list or learn about how you can get involved, um, you're absolutely welcome to do that. And then for those of you um, who we do have an email address for that, that signed up, um, we will be sending up, out some follow-up material, um, which will include um, some carbon footprint calculators and some, some other resources. And um, to both our panelists, we've had a few questions in the chat um, asking if we can share your, your presentations for some of the charts and graphs. So 
Um, if you'll allow that, we'll, we'll share those as well with the, the um, audience tonight. Um, and with that, I would say those who, who need to leave because it's eight o'clock or past eight, uh, by all means, um, please do so. We thank you so much for attending and participating. And then um, Dr. Bozeman, Dr. Hack, if you want to stick around for a few minutes, we have a couple more questions if you want to take those. Yes, I can stay. Great. Melanie, um, you've had your hand raised yeah, for some time. Hi, um, I have two questions. Um, I'm curious about poultry. Um, maybe the four-legged animals were featured. And um, what about the effect of poultry, uh, eating poultry? Because that's mostly what I eat. Every once in a while, fish. Nothing four-legged as it turns out. Um, that's one question. And then another question from another aspect of the problem is dietary guidelines as okay sanctioned by the government and by various dietitians. I'm reluctant, I have some issues, things that I'm concerned about. And I, I prefer to look it up on my own because I don't think that any dietitian is necessarily going to be able to answer my questions. And so by the time I go travel there, even pre-pandemic, why? Because I don't think that they're gonna know what I'm gonna know. <laughs> and, and I don't think that they're gonna necessarily get on board with any particular aspect of dietary recommendation. So is anybody in the food justice community working with these government entities on what good dietary guidelines are? And then also the question about poultry. Well, I'll jump real, real quick, Dr. Hyde, for the second part of your question, uh, Melanie, correct? Right. Uh, the Eat Lancet Commission and this dietary framework that both Dr. Hayek and I referred to equivalent to the Canadian dietary recommendations. I would say I have a decent amount of confidence in those recommendations. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's uh, recommendations, I'm skeptic of some aspects of it, so I understand why you have some reservations there. But the Eat Lancet Commission dietary Eat framework Lancet. is one that's 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 one that I think based on what you described of your diet, it would match up pretty well to based on the volumes of those foods that you eat. Okay, thank you. And I don't know if you had anything to, to mention, Dr. Heike, when it comes to, to chicken, but I just have to state chicken does have a, a less footprint in greenhouse gas emissions than beef, lamb, and pork. So- And I eat organic, right? okay. so, so I don't worry about the antibiotics. Got it. No. Yeah. So it is important to know that with organic chicken, organic chicken is still allowed to be fed antibiotics. It just has to be, it can't be sub-therapeutic antibiotics. But when an individual chicken gets uh, an infection, you often have to treat the entire shed yeah. because even organic chickens are raised in sheds of 40,000 birds or more. Oh, I see. So, so I think antibiotic resistance and pandemic risk are still very high with organic chicken, which also has just as high as a greenhouse gas footprint as, um, as, as conventional chicken. Um, and all of these, the, the greenhouse gas, the land, the water, this is all less for chicken than pork and beef. But something I like to emphasize is if you're considering 
already cutting out pork and beef? Or uh, is that it's way better to substitute that with plants than with chickens? Because with chicken, you do have those antibiotic concerns. You do have a lot of very phosphorus rich uh, uh, for, uh, uh, manure that pollutes waterways. And you have those risks of, you know, um, bacteria and viruses breaking out in these sheds of 40,000 birds or more. So I think one of the safest things that we can do is really considering uh, substituting our red meat with plant-based sources rather than with chicken. Um, chick Americans already eat about 120 pounds of chicken a year. So I think we're already on the cusp of what we can produce sustainably. I think the priority is keeping it at that level or, or less. Hey, um, how come your charts don't include the chicken? Because it, yeah. How come the charts So don't. this one is, does, I can pull it up really quick because there was a ton of information on it. Um, so I will just go ahead and share it again. Oh. And uh, so here's pig meat, which, oh, is, is. which is which is way less than beef, but here's pig meat and here's poultry just below it. Right. And, okay. and I would say American chicken is actually even a little less than this because this is the global average chicken, which is um, produced very inefficiently in some places. And if you look at the, the charts that I, I put up, Melanie, I also yeah. refer to ch it's chicken and poultry. So if you see the term, sometimes people bypass it because we term it as poultry sometimes, but. Oh, I missed it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's there. Okay. Thank you. No problem. Thank you for the question, by the way. Thank you, Melanie. Um, I think I'm going to close things out now. We're 10 past eight and, and respect of everyone's time. Uh, out. I do have one more announcement I want to make, which is that the Intergenerational Spring Seminar, which is hosted by the UU office, UUA office at the UN, is Friday, April 9th through Sunday the 11th. And this year, it's relevant to what we're talking about here. It's all in for climate justice, food equity, and sustainability. And this is co-sponsored by the UU Ministry for Earth. And you can register anytime between now and March 18th. And I, I did put the link. Um, into the chat just a moment ago. And we'll, we'll keep um, promoting that um, in the coming weeks as well. And we'll include it in the follow-up email that we send out. Um, and actually, Allison is still here. She's gonna put that in, clickable link. Great, thank you. So Dr. Bozeman, Dr. Hayek, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, it was really, really wonderful talk. And just based on the, the depth and the amount of the questions, I think we probably could have gone on for another half hour or more. And I know that now the two of you are connected in your work as well. So I'm really glad to know that. Um, I appreciate your time. And um, I appreciate the time of everyone that attended tonight and uh, everybody on the environmental justice team, uh, Jody and Liz and Eileen and Barbara and Melanie and Liza. And of course, Ember who made everything happen on a technical side tonight and will be um, pushing this out as a, um, YouTube video and podcast as well. So everyone stay tuned for more great um, programming in the next couple of weeks. Thank you all so much. Thanks, Brett. See thank you, Dr. Hyatt. Thanks, Brett, Ember, Barbara. Great to meet everyone here. And thank you for all the attendees. See you later.